I am Citizen 44. Hey everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 79. Today my guest is Ashland Police Officer Bon Stewart. He's also my friend, super great guy, very lucky to have a perspective like his about law enforcement. And I know that's a hot button topic. So many people have been affected either positively or negatively via law enforcement. And I think Bond does a great job of articulating the complexity of the job along with the human side of a job that frankly, we shouldn't have to have people doing, but because we are so poorly educated and emotionally immature, we need this kind of enforcement. An intelligent community doesn't require laws. On Saturday, the 30th of November at around noon, my mother passed away. She had not too long of a battle with cancer, but uh, definitely challenging times. She was so sweet all the way through for the most part. You know, she's got her little, uh, as my father says, ornery side, but I had a great final week with her. We had some really incredibly sweet times, super present for visitors, and uh, she went out with the cool that she came in with. She's just a great lady and she will be missed terribly. I love you, Mom. Where are you going? To the Taj Mahal for lunch. Isn't that in India? Yes, it's in India. You're going to India for lunch, mm-hmm. Mom? I'm going to India for lunch. Oh. With the Fairfax Girls. Oh, that's right. Today's a Fairfax Girls Day. What is that now? These are all ladies that you went to high, high school, school with? Uh-huh. Anyhow, I was thinking about you, and I wondered if you were just thinking about me, because we're usually on the same wavelength. Well, I'm always thinking about you in some way, whether it's consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously. I know usually when I think of you, you call or something, so I thought I would beat you to the punch, and I would call you and let you know that I've been thinking of you. Oh, that's very sweet. Hi, Judy! Mark says, hi, Judy. Hello, how are you doing? She says, hey, hello, and how are you doing? I'm doing great, Judy. Tell Judy she's on the show right now. Uh, Mark says he's doing great, and you're on the show right now. I'm on the show? Yeah. What's that? that? What do you call that show, Mark? Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg. Yeah, Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg. By the way, you know, the first part of her name is Jew. I'm sorry? Did you know the first part of Judy's name is Jew? Jew. Well, I call her Jude. I know, but if you just, if you break it up into syllables, and she is Jewish, first syllable of her name is Jew. Is Jew, yeah. I have to tell you, when I first started drinking a Red Bull, I got this great rush buzz yeah yeah and i loved it it wasn't sustainable so i turned to mate it's supposed to be a much healthier caffeinated option i used to go into my son's room and i would find monster cans and that shit all over the fucking place so i know he was completely addicted to those things 
and I've been really good about not freaking out on him with some of his behaviors. I woke up at three in the morning and just started doing all this research. And by the time the whole family was up the next morning, I was in fucking tears, freaking out. Well, I talked to my doctor about it because working graveyard is difficult and I haven't done it in 10 years. So when there's nothing going on, you need something to keep you awake. You're looking for stuff. Try not to wreck your car. So I talked to my doctor and my doctor said, you can drink a Red Bull once in a while, but if you continue to drink those on a daily basis, it will enlarge your heart muscles and it'll cause cardiovascular disease. So I, uh, I needed something else. I drink two cups of coffee when I wake up and then I'll drink two of these during the night. It's just a tea. It's delicious. This is Bon Stewart. Bon is a local police officer with the Ashland Police Department. Also been a friend for a long time. Right. It's great to have you on the show. I appreciate you spending a little time. I know you're doing some pretty important work out there, going to schools and other places of business, giving them instruction on how to deal with shooters. That's right. How's that going? It's going great. I started that four or five years ago. I went to three different train-to-trainer trainings, and I really liked one particular more than the others, which was the Alice Training Institute program where they actually run participants through active shooter scenarios. It's really a passion of mine, and I probably have given somewhere around 60 of these trainings to churches, synagogues, schools, other local businesses, and it's super well-received. And even people who are nervous about talking about this come away and thank me they feel empowered and that's all i want is them to feel empowered because it is a helpless feeling if you ever find yourself in that situation and you haven't planned for it why are these things occurring this is the thing we're not dealing with well we in jackson county and around the state and probably around the country are starting to recognize that we have to do something on the other end the front end before it happens i am part of the jackson county risk assessment team which includes Jackson County mental health workers, police officers from all over the valley, detectives, school counselors, school administration. It started out as just dealing with students who catch people's attention with their behaviors and their language. It is growing into, is there just people in our community who are doing that? Adults who are in our community doing that and doing risk assessments on them. What can be done about them without them committing a crime as a whole? different story. It's hard to take action against somebody who hasn't committed a crime and who isn't an imminent danger to self or others, which is what the law says. That's when we can take actions according to the law. Once they've been identified, we do reach out to them. I've been working in the police department almost 21 years. And in the last few years with this active shooter, new dynamic we have, Mental health has recognized that they have to have intervention prior to these people committing crimes. Even the police department, if we deal with somebody who seems like they're in a mental health crisis, but there's still nothing we can do about it, we refer them to mental health professionals. And mental health will reach out to them. They might start with a phone call, but they'll eventually end up at their home trying to offer them help. So it is in a place of not punishment, but help. It's interesting. In my field, because I'm not a mental health worker, but I'm expected to be in a lot of ways. 
I had the opportunity to have lots of conversations with a mental health professional talking about this. And one of the questions I had is, is this nurture in that these people have been coddled and been given too much or are they not being given enough or are they abused? And what I've been told is it's the latter, that they're not given enough love and that they are abused in some way. Maybe not necessarily physically, but emotionally. It would occur to me in these challenging times that it would be incumbent upon police departments to enhance their programs to include more mental health education and the ability to communicate with people in maybe a totally different way than they're accustomed to. When I went through the police academy, they did not teach anything about the mental health part of it. They just expected you to use your common sense to go out there and mediate these problems that took a lifetime to create and us to go out there for three minutes and figure it all out. Now, every officer in Ashland, for sure, and I think it's a state mandate, that every officer receive 40 hours of crisis intervention training, CIT training. That training is all about dealing with the mentally ill or a mental health crisis. How can 40 hours of training prepare you for all the work that you have to do out there with people? That 40 hours is responding to a crisis situation. And it's an ongoing training. So you get 40 hours where you're immersed in it. And then there's updates. I wouldn't say annually, but probably biannually, where we sit in a classroom four to eight hours and do updates and rehearse what we already know. In Ashland, we have homeless and travelers. Travelers by the way they live are homeless, though some will say they're at home because they're on the planet Earth. But one is a by choice and one is not by choice. From my experience as a police officer, what I see is people who are out there not by choice, are seeking services from the county and from the state and from the feds. They're seeking a way to get back up on their feet and not be dependent on the system. The people that are out there by choice, it might be a mental health problem that's keeping them out there by choice. It might be a drug addiction or alcohol addiction that's keeping them out there by choice or just an unwillingness to abide by the same rules that the rest of us are trying to abide by. and. Those people aren't seeking services as much. They seek food and warm clothes and sleeping arrangements, but they don't want to be waking up and going to work every day. That's a personal choice. Mm -hmm. I can't say yay or nay to that because I don't know that what we've set up as a system to go to work every day and go home and that kind of routine is necessarily the healthiest thing for us either. Right. What I have noticed recently is there's not 10 people in front of the stop and shop. What has been the success? What has been the challenges for you guys? Well, I will say that the police department can't take full responsibility for the reduction in the downtown disorderly behavior. And we can't take credit for it because we can't take the blame for it when there's an influx and they overwhelm the downtown. But I can tell you that I think there's a reduction in services recently, which has caused some people not to want to be here. And when I say services, I mean free meals. The shelter has become more restrictive. When the shelter let anybody who showed up come in, that created a huge problem because a lot of the people who were showing up had already been kicked out of all the other shelters in the Rogue Valley because of bad behavior using drugs at the facilities, fighting at the facilities, hurting other people at the facilities, just not abiding by the rules. So they have been kicked out of every other shelter. So when Ashland opened a shelter and said, anybody can come, they all came, even the unsavory came. 
So the people they were trying to help were actually being harmed by the presence of these people. So they started vetting the people that come to the shelters. And I think that reduced it. I think the city council enacting these new laws for enhanced enforcement in the downtown corridor really helped. The police used to show up and citizens would be complaining about a behavior and we would show up and say, there's no laws against that behavior. There's nothing we can do. What's an example of that behavior? Loud, obnoxious behavior. Loud, obnoxious behavior in and of itself isn't a crime. And I'd be in be jail. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think maybe I would sometimes too. Other cursory things was dogs would be off leashes, no proof of vaccinations, drinking in public, which we could do something about, blocking the sidewalk, unfettered panhandling. There's no loitering laws in Oregon, right? No. A lot of loitering laws have been found unconstitutional. The Supreme Court said, basically you're telling people they can't hang out. They can't exist at this location for a certain amount of time. I grew up in the East, Kentucky and Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. And we would go into the city all the time and we'd walk around the tourist section. And the tourist section is very clean around the mall and all the museums is very clean. There is no criminal element that is visible in the touristy area. They have what's called a red light district that me and my friends would go tour for excitement. We would just walk around and watch. And we learned that you had to keep walking there. Literally, you could not loiter on a city block. So you would watch people constantly walk back and forth, slow shuffle. It was very interesting to me. It's loitering, it's just moving loitering. They had a law that says you couldn't stand in one place for a certain amount of time. And that's what we were told because we asked people that were there who were on the street. Did you personally notice this year a reduction in things that you had to deal with? Absolutely. The police department has noticed it. Friends of mine have noticed it. You've noticed it. Everyone has noticed it. It's hard to say what's caused it. Did the smoke last year cause it? Did our enhanced enforcement cause it? That has definitely kept people who are chronic problems from remaining downtown. Because once they get that third ticket... So is that a three strikes rule you guys had going on here? It's three strikes, then you get no trespass for 30 days or 90 days. It depends. And then people usually leave town or they'll leave town for that period of time and then they come back and then they start the ongoing process. The only thing that works is kicking them out. On the community's barometer, where do you feel Ashland Police Department sits right now? Because I know it fluctuates depending on what's going on in town. How, I mean, this... how much people like us? 
yes, that's the question. It's really unfair to ask me. I tend to have rose-tinted glasses. I live in Ashland. I've lived in the Rogue Valley for 28 years, and 22 of those have been in Ashland. Six or seven years ago, I moved out of Ashland, moved to Talent, bought a house in Talent. Since I've sold that, remarried, and moved to Ashland. People who know me are super friendly with me. I just did a presentation, well, five presentations to the entire staff of Ashland Food Co-op. Just 20-minute presentation. Annie Hoy loved it, by the way. She said how much she appreciated that you came and did that. What's great about that was I go in there almost daily, in uniform a lot of times, and a lot of the employees are super friendly with me, and some are very standoffish. But I showed up and gave those classes in a T-shirt and jeans. I always try to show human personality behind that. And since then, going in there, every employee smiles at me, waves, says hi. They don't avoid me. Everywhere I go, I feel a part of the community because I lived here so long. And before that, I worked at Rogue Credit Union. I started out as a teller there. What year was that? 92. Was that just out of college? No, I was up in Alaska and I met some people from here and came here to check it out and ended up staying and getting a job at Rogue. Actually, I'd gotten out of the Air Force about a year earlier. I'd been traveling and was looking for a place to call home that was cool. And I found Ashland. What were you doing in Alaska? Working in a cannery. Oh. Yeah, and uh, it was great because at one point got laid off while I was up there. And I was laid off for probably three weeks. I got up there for the cod season and then I cleaned king crab for a while. And it was before the salmon started running, so no fish. And I lived in the barracks of the company I worked for. And they're still charging me for room and board. I got sick of that. So I moved into a tent and I lived in a tent for a month. So when people say, you don't know what it's like to live in a tent, I'm like, actually I do. I lived in a tent for a month. After I moved out of the tent, I stayed in Alaska for three or four more months. Then I probably could have stayed in the tent. And I was there during the spring and summer. And in spring and summer where I was, it rained 75 to 80% of the time. It was like a constant drizzle. So I knew what it was like to constantly try to stay dry living in a tent. So. I can empathize with people who are trying to stay dry, living in a tent. There's consequences for our choices that we make, and the hardest time I have understanding travelers and transients who blame the rest of us for the way we live for their situation, because when I was living in a tent, it was by choice. I had no money. I was going in debt with the company I worked for to have room and board, and I chose to live in a tent and eat sandwiches every day until my work started. Fish sandwiches? Yeah, I ate a lot of salmon sandwiches, but it was before the run. After the run, I had more salmon I could eat. Before the run, I was eating peanut butter and jelly every day, and it literally almost killed me. I thought I was gonna die. I 
it got to the point where I, I didn't eat any solid food for about 10 days. I couldn't keep it down and I blame peanut butter for it. After this happened, I couldn't eat peanut butter for like three years. Wow. Just the smell of peanut butter after that made me wretch. And still today, somebody offers me a peanut butter cookie. No, thank you. Wow. I've had enough for a lifetime. <laughs> exactly. Have you actually spoken to your fellow officers about your experience as you talk about what's happening here? Sometimes it comes up. Not everybody knows that I lived in a tent for a month. I say a month, but it was four to six weeks. I can't remember exactly how long it was. But, you know, the difference for me was I knew it was a consequence of my own choices. And I also wasn't suffering from any kind of mental health issue that I'm aware of. And I wasn't drug or alcohol dependent. Right. I wasn't doing any drugs or alcohol at the time. I couldn't afford it. Right. <laughs> so it's amazing to me that people who are broke still are able to maintain habits like that. Do you ask everybody on the street, why are you on the street? No, I don't think I've ever asked anyone that. Do you think that's something that we need to know? Who's actually going around and talking to the people and asking them why they're out here and even getting them to say in front of themselves why they're on the street so that could be examined and maybe something could be done from there. A dialogue at least started. I do have conversations with them sometimes and sometimes it comes out why they're there. Some in the summer just say, you know, I'm on summer vacation and this is what I chose to do, which I always find interesting. And then um, some blame society some just say this is my choice. There's a huge gambit of why they're out there. And I think the mental health, when they do get on their radar, they do try to find out what's motivating them to stay on the street and do they want to get off the street. And mental health, they do try to help them get off the street. I've known several people who were homeless here in Ashland. They were clearly suffering from a mental health illness, not a danger to self or others, but constantly getting arrested for stupid stuff disorderly behavior mostly and eventually we got them in touch with mental health and mental health did help them get homes get them on disability so they're getting a regular check so they can buy food pay rent so the system isn't perfect but it is trying and the hardest part is the people who you're trying to help have to be willing to receive it well, that's the whole thing but if they're sick, they don't know either. So that's the tough part. That's the toughest part. You can't make someone make a decision if their facilities are not able to make those kinds of decisions. Do you know who John Theory was? No. John Theory was a homeless man for years here. He was accused and taken to trial for starting the Oakno fires. He was found not guilty at trial for that. But John was clearly suffering from mental illness. John slept under bridges with rats. He was clearly mentally ill. and. Every time I spoke to him, I asked him if I could take him to the hospital, and he refused. He would tell me he's not mentally ill. I don't have a problem. I'm not mentally ill. I don't want your help. It didn't stop me from asking. I asked him every time, and I told him he was mentally ill. I told him I'm not a professional, but I can look at you and tell you you're mentally ill, and I'd like to take you to the hospital, and he would refuse. He's deceased now. been on the force for over 20 years. Yes. Why'd you become a police officer? I thought you might ask me that. I was 32 when I got into law enforcement. I got into law enforcement as a 911 dispatcher. I had quit Road Credit Union. I went to work for another bank that's since defunct. And I was playing rugby at the time. 
I played for the Rogue Valley Steelheads. We were a semi-pro rugby team. We traveled all over the Pacific Northwest to play rugby. And I got hurt and I didn't rehabilitate it correctly and it was hard for me to get back into it and had this need for that adrenaline. But I also liked helping people. That's why I worked in the banking industry. I liked helping people buy cars or help them with their finances. It was suggested to me that you would be a good firefighter or cop. So I enrolled in RCC to do the paramedic school. And as soon as I started that, I got hired as a 911 dispatcher. In that time, the 911 center was in the Ashland Police Department. So I was surrounded by cops. And I was encouraged highly to apply for the next position that came open, which I did, got hired as a police officer. And I think I have the right personality for it. I am empathetic. I want to help people. I want to hold people responsible. I like the physicality of it. I think that comes from playing rugby for five years. And I don't know if it's my playing a violent sport for five years or having been in the military, but the more serious and critical things get, the slower things become for me. And there's a term for that, and I can't remember what it is, but it really makes me feel like I fell into the right career where I get to go out there and do something different every day, make a difference. It might be a small difference, but I make a difference every day. I feel like I'm making a difference every day, and I enjoy doing my job every day. What is your position now? You're a... I'm a patrol sergeant working graveyard. I haven't worked a graveyard rotation, which means working it for three or four months at a time. I haven't done that in 10 years. Until I promoted to sergeant, I had the most seniority in the patrol group, so I could work weekdays, day shift, for the rest of my career if I didn't promote. But I chose to promote because I thought it was the right time in my life to finally promote. I've been asked to promote before and I didn't. So I promoted. The sergeants are required to do at least one rotation of graveyard a year. So I'm on my one rotation of graveyard this year. Weren't you promoted to detective prior to that? Yes. When I got promoted to sergeant, I was a detective at the time working drugs and property crime, wearing jeans and t-shirt and had take-home cars. I really loved that job. Why'd you I, give that up? Because I felt like it was a good time. I felt like I had the experience that I could help younger officers, help train them and supervise them through their day, mentor them. And I thought that was the best place for me for the police department. It was a raise, but it wasn't a huge raise that made a difference in my lifestyle. I could have lived without the raise, but I really like it. I was dreading going to graveyard. And the hardest part for me is the sleep part. I'm not sleeping well. But what I love about it is none of the officers I work with have more than five years experience. And it's great watching them work and trying to figure things out when things are complicated, work through, is this legal, is this not legal? And being able to help them with that and understand their legal authority and people's civil rights and where those things meet and where that gray line is, that wide gray line of, is it legal and is it the right thing to do? So it was good timing for me. I didn't know I was gonna meet my wife and fall in love. <laughs> so that complicated that. Cause you're talking we, about your current wife? My current wife, yeah. we just got married three and a half months ago. And Congratulations. Thanks. And She's thank a firefighter, you. right? She's the community preparedness coordinator for the fire department. Okay. She's been with them for nine years. We didn't even know each other, really. We knew of each other, but didn't know each other, much less meet each other, fall in love and get married and then be living together. 
When we met, I knew I was going to have to work this graveyard shift. So we were mentally preparing for it, knowing that we would be on different days off and I would be sleeping during the day and she would be sleeping during the night. But when I first signed up for this, that was not in the picture. So the only people I talked to about promoting were my sons. I have two sons. One is away at college and the other one lives with me. And I talked to them, especially the one that lives with me. And I said, do you have a problem with me working graveyard? And he was maybe a little too enthusiastic about me not being around during the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, absolutely, go for it. I've already been selected as the next detective sergeant. So I'll be supervising the detective division starting in January. So I go from graveyard back into detective. What was it, 2011, November 19th? The David Grubbs. The David Grubbs murder. case. I heard recently that there was some new activity around that. Maybe you can tell me if that's true or not. Well, just being in patrol, I'm not privy to the ins and outs and what have you of that case. I was actually just thinking about this the other day. My plan is to read over that case when I get back as the detective sergeant, fresh pair of eyes looking at the case. That case is not considered closed. It's unsolved and there is constant attention given to it. We live in a very theatrical town, Shakespeare, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Where else in the world would someone be beheaded by a sword? This town literally is financed through drama. Yes. And I think we've always had a lot of drama here in this community. We have. We lost an officer last year, Malchus. Yes. Such a sweet guy. And I've known him for years because his wife was the manager over there at Felony Flats <laughs> on Terra. Isn't that the code name for that place? That was one of them, yeah. Yeah. Tudor Square. Tudor Square. It That's used it. to be called the Colony Inn. That's where the Felony Inn came in. Anyway, it's incomprehensible to me that the department would allow him to get to a point in his life physically that that could happen. The department can't do anything about it. In 2009, myself and another officer, Lisa Evans, were sent to the Cooper Institute in Dallas, Texas. The Cooper Institute was created by Dr. Cooper, and he is considered the inventor of aerobics. He created that as a physical fitness program for the Air Force. And he's made a career out of it. And he has this huge campus down in Dallas and he teaches people to become physical trainers. And he has a program specifically for law enforcement. So myself and Officer Evans went down there, got trained to be trainers. And we brought a program back here. Our chief at the time, Terry Holderness, was super supportive of it. The problem with it is there is no standard in the state of Oregon for physical fitness measurement requiring people to be physically fit. You're talking about within law enforcement? Within law enforcement. Okay. We started a program and it was voluntary. And there's incentives for reaching the goals that have been set for that program. And they are monetary goals. If you reach a certain level, you get a certain monetary incentive to maintain that. And we get that monetary incentive twice a year. And if you make it, you get the incentive. If you don't make it, you don't get the incentive. And you get an incentive just for trying. And I will say that Malchus is a dear friend of mine, and he was a day younger than me. Our birthdays were one day apart. I've known him since we were in our early 20s, before either of us were cops. And 
What I know about him was that he recognized that he needed to be in better shape and he started working on a program to get back into shape. It's just one of those unfortunate things, the demands of the job. I can't put it all on Malchus, I can put some of it on the job itself. Because he was working graveyard shift, and that is hard on the body in and of itself. Some people prefer to work it. That doesn't mean it's any less hard on their body. It's not natural to be up all night long and sleep during the day for long periods of time. And I think he had been on graveyard for two or three years. I don't know whether that was a by choice or by seniority mm. because the union prevents a lot of this. I was the vice president of the union before I promoted. I'm no longer part of the union. Does the union help or hurt? Well, the union is there to protect the employees and the employees did not want to be forced into a physical fitness program. So it was incumbent upon the executive board of the union to do what they wanted. What has happened in the last year is the police administration says, okay, we can't hold you to a standard, but we can make you do it. Now everybody's required to do the physical fitness program. They're just not held to the standard. So there's no punishment for not meeting the standards that the police department would like to see. And the police department has all good intentions. They want people to be healthy, fit for duty. I think you have to be, don't you? You have to be fit for duty. And fit for duty is, can you walk around and talk to people? You don't have to be able to run long distances. You don't have to be able to lift a certain amount of weight. You have to periodically be able to pick up 20 pounds. I wear 22 pounds worth of gear, including boots and clothes. So you have to be able to wear that. Yeah. He was a big guy. He was a big guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah he was 6'2", 6'3". Yeah. He was a running back. He was a tailback for SOU back in the day. Everybody knew him. Oh, yeah. Not a friendlier face. He really was a peace officer. I wouldn't even say a police officer. He was a peace officer. Yes. And I liked the way he conducted himself with people. He was very fair and reasonable. And I think he represented the department pretty well. I think so, too. You do as well. I have met your police chief. He's a super cool guy. Yes, interesting new era for the department here in Ashland under his tutelage, would you say? Yes. Well, he's the first police chief that I've worked for that's younger than me by five or six years. Huh. When Terry Holderness came, Ty O'Meara's who we're talking about, the current chief, Ty worked for him, started as a sergeant and then as a lieutenant and then promoted to chief when Terry left. Terry really changed the culture of the Ashland Police Department. The culture of the Ashland Police Department was not good prior to Terry. Is this the Michael Bianca years? Michael Bianca years, yes. A lot of infighting. It was two or three years before Terry got here. It was the only time in my career that I was thinking about leaving the Ashland Police Department. It was so horrible. And then Terry came and sat down with everybody and said, what's the problem with the Ashland Police Department? And he identified what he was told was being the problems, what he saw himself. And he worked on changing those things and changing the culture and making it a place where police could come, do their job, not be second-guessed constantly. You need to be second-guessed because you're out there affecting people's lives, but not micromanaged. Terry was forward-thinking. He started the You Have Options program, but Ty is taking it to the next level where we are making sure that we're getting the latest training on how to deal with the transgender community, how to deal with the mentally ill community and that we are peace officers first. The expectation is that we are part of the community, helping the community. We're not an invading force. You're part of a much bigger brotherhood, of course. Right. And obviously law enforcement 
has come under a lot of scrutiny. There's a lot of horrible things that happen. Even my daughter said she noticed they used the term one bad apple, but she says they're forgetting the rest of the quote, which is spoils the whole bunch. How do you feel about being part of a national law enforcement community and how that reflects on you as an individual police officer and part of the whole police community? I'm part of a online community. I get any news that is national officer involved shooting. And a lot of times we get to see the body cam video or other footage that is not readily available to the public and read what the experts are saying about those shootings. With my team, we watch these officer involved shootings and we do trainings. Even if it was a justified shooting, what could the officer have done to mitigate that situation? So when an officer commits a crime and kills somebody or does something else horrific and is doing something illegal or violating somebody's civil rights, I get infuriated because I know it's going to affect the public opinion about how I do my job in Ashland, Oregon. One of the things that I look at is when you deal with a person of the community, that person is likely to have one or two experiences with law enforcement in their lifetime. A lot of what we deal with at night is DUIs. And I watch my guys, they're doing DUIs every night. People are driving drunk every night in Ashland. You don't have to tell me I was a taxi driver. Right. So that person's going to be negatively affected by that choice that they made for a long time. The officer who is enforcing that law against that person doesn't need to make it worse on them. They need to make that so they can take responsibility for themselves because if the officer does it wrong, the focus becomes that officer mistreated me right. instead of what I did wrong. Right. So if you treat that person well, explain what you're doing to them, make it educational, they can take responsibility for what they've done. And the focus doesn't become on what the officer did. What's excruciating a lot of times is now officers do the right thing and it's still portrayed in the media or perceived by the public as the officer could have done something else. I recently watched an officer involved shooting body cam video of the officer in Minneapolis, St. Paul, who on September 4th or 5th was rear-ended in his patrol car by a man. Intentionally? Intentionally. Yeah. He exited his patrol car. The man comes up to him and throws him to the ground. And then he gets up to his feet and the man attacks him with a knife. He shoots and I don't know if the man died or not. I can't remember that part, but he shot the man two or three times. The man went down and he starts radioing for help, medical help for the man and backup. And there are protests that the officer should have done something differently. I think that comes from where officers do do things wrong and they're now applying it to where when the officer did something that he had no choice. He had a rapidly evolving, life-threatening event happening to him, not by anything he created. And now there's protests because the officer didn't de-escalate the situation. And my question when I hear that is, what would you have done when you were being attacked by a man with a knife? I know de-escalation techniques, but I don't know them when a man is on top of me trying to kill me. Right. My de-escalation is physically stop him. So I get angry at the police when they do something wrong, especially when they do something horrific. Well, it's a reflection on you and you have to take the burden of that. I like to remind people that when officers do do things wrong, the people who are bringing them to justice are other law enforcement officers. They're the ones who are empowered to do something about it. And we come from a police culture where that wasn't always the case. 
We come from a police culture where 50, 60 years ago, law enforcement officers did act like they are above the law. But I think we are way past that. If you lie in an official capacity, that is grounds for termination. And in my career, I've seen officers get terminated for lying in their official capacity from the Ashland Police Department. And good riddance. If you're going to lie in your official capacity, when you've just taken an oath, you've raised your hand and said, I'm about to tell the truth and you lie. I just don't understand the mentality of why you would lie about anything that you did. Everybody lies. When we get married, it says you will obey, you will do all these things. This shit is impossible for the most part to be a human being, you know. <laughs> right. You're getting paid to do a job. Part of your job is to work within the realm of these rules that have been laid down, not only to protect everybody else, but also to protect you more than anybody else. Right. Because when you lie, you've given up your own protection. Foolish. I agree with you 100%. I don't know why a police officer would not want to wear a body cam. I have never heard of an officer who doesn't have a problem with how they do their job, not wanting to wear a body cam. I think it protects me. And when I say it protects me is I've been the subject of internal investigations twice for excessive force. Both times it was prior to wearing a body cam. And it basically came down to was what they said believable or what I wrote in my report previously, and now I'm being interviewed about it. And the only thing that protected me prior to the body cam was my reputation and integrity. Fortunately, both of those people's stories were so outrageous that at the face of it wasn't truly believable, but they had to do their due diligence and interview me and interview other people that might have been around. But now I have that body cam on and I never worry about it. It's a good cop's best friend, right? Absolutely. And sometimes I've cussed at people in the course of dealing with them. And I've had them say, didn't you tell me you're recording? And I say, yes, I did. I'm absolutely recording and I don't have a problem with anything I've said to you. And I'm perfectly fine explaining it to my boss. I'll let the video explain it to my right, boss. Right. They'll see that that was a tactical use of the F word or whatever. And you can't not wear your body cam, can you? By policy, we're required to have it on our body. And when we're dealing with a member of the public to have it recording. Now, when we're interviewing victims, we don't always have it on because there's not a need for it. Somebody asks us for directions, I don't turn it on. But in policy, I should. What if should. they ask you for directions and pull out a gun? You just never know what's going on with somebody. So the instinct is you get in the habit of turning that thing on when you feel like something might happen. And it's got a big old button on the front of it. Double tap it and it turns on. And then you hold it down for three seconds, it turns off. If you get used to turning it on really quickly. I was in a use of force a few weeks ago. I had turned it on to go talk to the person and they ran from me. I turned it off because now we weren't in physical contact. I ran back to my car to get closer. So I drove my car closer, got out of my car again, didn't think to turn it on immediately because they were so far away. Eventually caught up with them and now we're in a struggle. And the thought in my head is, oh, my body cam's not on. And I immediately tap it on while I'm struggling with this person. And it's got a 30 second loop on it. So it's constantly recording for 30 seconds. Right. So it goes back that 30 seconds. The only thing that's not there in that 30 seconds is the audio, but the visual is there for the right. 30 seconds. So you know when the officer turned it on because the sound starts, you see their hand come up to it. I love the body cam. When I hear an officer complain about the body cam, I'm like, what are you doing that you don't like it? Well, that's suspicious to mm -hmm. me. That it is. is to me too. Yeah. Some departments say they don't have body cams because they can't afford them. And it is an expensive program and to maintain them. 
I know, but it seems like that can't even be an option anymore. Cities all over the country don't have them and they say it's for financial reasons. I've heard police chiefs say for liability reasons and to me, not to have them is a liability. Yeah. So some of them clip on and the newer generation, they have heavy magnets and you put the magnet behind your shirt and, mm -hmm. and those tend to stay on. But if you see officers when they get into resisting arrest situation where they're fighting, I've had situations where there's three officers fighting one person trying to get them in custody. When the person's in custody and everything's calmed down, body cams are on the ground. They've all come off our shirts. Unless it's that magnet, it's such a poor mechanism. They're just slid into a pocket and it inevitably gets knocked off. And In this time when we are technological junkies, <laughs> it seems one, inexcusable that that's an issue and that there are police officers that are not wearing them. <laughs> that's insane to me. It is to me too. The other thing that I think about a lot is with all the technology we have, you would think that we could come up with other ways to immobilize people that does not cause fatal injury. There's got to be other things that we can come up with that you guys can use that can stop someone pretty easily, like an elephant tranquilizer, something. We don't have to be cowboys and Indians anymore. We could stop shooting bullets at people. It seems nuts to me. You would think that as important as law enforcement and peace officering is, that somebody could come up with a new set of tools so you could really become peace officers and take that whole element of fatality out of the job. I don't know. I don't have the technology or the understanding of technology to even speak to that. All I know is if somebody's got a gun, I want to have a gun. I started watching all these videos about these new robots. They're pretty amazing. Some robots can run and right. jump and do things. There's no excuse for any firefighter is to have to go into a fire and get killed. These robots can literally hold hoses. They're full of cameras. And all you do is guide these things around. It seems to me when it comes to a situation where you guys are really under the gun, so to speak, that human beings should not be put in a position of fatality. There's got to be other ways to bring control around something without putting another human being's life in jeopardy. And I think that's where the decision-making starts getting skewed for a police officer, is when it is life and death, that you can't be clear as you would like to be, and you have to make amygdala decisions, that is fight, flight, or freeze, mm -hmm. which is our base level caveman thinking. You can train those responses. I know you can, but it seems that even though you can train those responses, there's still the big news story all the time about these fatalities where children are being killed by police officers because they didn't make the right decision. Yeah. How do you train an officer, a human being well enough where they know not to kill a 14 year old kid because something looked like something? There's too much fallibility in the job. And it's really dangerous. We know how dangerous the job is. It's ridiculous. It's almost a job that shouldn't have to be, but it is because of who we are. The question is, how can you be empowered to be less violent and be more of a human being? And if that can't work, where you put in something else, like the bomb robots, that takes you out of harm's way and somebody else out of harm's way. Well, a lot of, if not the majority of the officer-involved shootings, when an officer has to shoot somebody, happen when the officer's already been in contact with a person and maybe it was a violent altercation with someone else or maybe it wasn't and the person decided that they were going to shoot the officer or try to kill the officer. Those are the majority of the officer-involved shootings where they're already in close proximity to the person and their decision-making the white space is what I've heard it called. 
where you have time to think about the decision you're about to make or the action you're about to take from the point of now I need to do something to doing it. That's the white space. So the more white space you have, the better decision you're likely to make in that rapidly evolving event that's life-threatening. So most of those, the white space is very minimal, like what I was talking about with Minneapolis St. Paul. From the point of contact to the point of actually shooting that person was four seconds, and he was being physically attacked with a knife. I don't see a resolution to that other than a lethal resolution. And in an active shooter situation, you think about that officers are trained to respond to the sound of gunfire. Since Columbine in 1999, officers have been trained. You don't set a perimeter and wait for SWAT. You don't have time for that. People are dying right now. You have a gun, you go in and you address the threat. You signed up for that. Sorry, if somebody told you this job was a safe job, they lied to you. This is a dangerous job. You might be put in a dangerous situation at some point in your life. You need to take as much lethal force to that event as you can to stop that crazy from continuing. And I don't know how you get around that. To put it in perspective, police officers train on how to react and shoot their gun. In the Ashton Police Department, we train twice a year, sometimes more, and we have the best equipment. I'm really proud of the Ashton Police Department and how they equip us. But in the United States, 92, give or take, percent of police officers will never shoot their gun in the line of duty, ever. But they train on it. I think that what you're talking about is how do we reduce 14-year-old kids who are holding something that looks like a gun, or maybe it's a toy gun, how do we stop them from being shot? The only way you could reduce that is if we had more situations where officers were actually having to deal with that more often. It is a proven fact, the more you do something, the better your reaction to doing it will be. So why don't they just have training programs where that's just going off? Scenarios? Yeah. We should. We just did it. We've done two scenario-based trainings in the last six months. And I think the emphasis is going to that because they are recognizing. And that's why when I do my program with the citizens, if people will do the four-hour program with me, a little over two hours, we talk about the techniques you would use, why they work, the mentality behind them, the rationale behind them. We practice them. And then the second part of that day, we go through five to seven scenarios. It's called inoculation. We inoculate them to those ideas of this is what you're going to do. And the reason you're going to do it is you're not going to have time to think about it. And that's what I meant by training can train those fight, flight, or freeze responses. The more you train, the better your response will be. That's just how it is. The more you train, the better your response will be. If we took half of the energy and money that is spent on the military, training people how to defend or fight instead of how to be really good human beings, holy shit, we would be really super high level conscious beings. We would. But we don't spend the time and energy to do the training necessary to get a really desirable outcome. I don't really understand that. Do you know why you're an excellent police officer? It wasn't your intention to be a police officer. And just like Plato said, the perfect leader for any group of people is someone who doesn't really want the job, but they're so well trained, they're chosen because they make sense for the job. You were asked to step up into the role of a police officer. Yeah. That was not necessarily your intent. And I think you make sense for the job because you're this cool, tatted up dude. You're in good shape. You look like you were in the military, yeah. but you seem like a nice, calm, reasonable human being. I think there's a lot to that and why I do have the aptitude. I do feel like the job chose me and I didn't choose it. And I am a rare police officer in that 
I'm not a gun aficionado. I'm not into them. I own some only because I inherited them. I don't ever shoot them. That's why I played rugby. I do like fighting. I've done martial arts in the past. So I do like that kind of stuff. But that's a challenge to me, a challenge to myself. I have two sons that are 19 and 17 now, and both of them are bigger than me. And I taught them what I know about defending yourself and fighting. And the younger one who outweighs me by 30 pounds, he's like, you want to wrestle? And I constantly am like, uh, not today, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> and he's kind of picked up on the fact that we both know that I'm not going to beat you anymore. You know everything I know, and you outweigh me by 30 pounds. I'm pretty proud of both my kids because uh, they grew up to be kind humans who also have this skill that they feel comfortable with their own physical safety. And they also know that there is a responsibility of when you become confident in protecting yourself that you have to protect others who can't. Neither one of them want to be a cop. Well, I'm glad that you're a police officer here in Ashland and I appreciate that you're also mentoring other young officers. You know, it's like parenting. If you have a shitty parent, you may have shitty kids because you're the example. They trust you. Right. Whatever you're doing, it must be right. You're my mom and dad. I mean, if you're hitting me, I guess that's the way parenting is, right? <laughs> the biggest thing is how can I help a person no matter what they're going through? And sometimes it's taking them to jail. And I explain that sometimes family members or victims of the crimes will be like, I don't want them to go to jail. And I sometimes say, I feel like jail's the best thing for them right now because it keeps you safe. It keeps them safe. It gives them opportunity to sober up. It protects the next victim because maybe they won't reoffend because now they know there's consequences for their actions. Sometimes jail is the best answer for helping somebody. I don't disagree with you. And until we come up with another option, I'm not happy to be part of the incarceration nation, honestly, right. because we are punishing instead of rehabilitating people. Yeah. The question is, how do we now take all those people and help them become productive citizens and make them healthy? The whole idea is let's make people healthy so they can enjoy their life because this is it as far as I know. I appreciate you coming on the show and really yeah. being candid about things. I know some things are harder to talk about than others, right. but I appreciate that you brought some truth to the matter. Can I just say something about police officers in general? Sure. Because I would be remiss to not say this. I think whether people fell into this job or chose it, I think most of them are in it for the best intentions. And when we have a bad police officer or basically a criminal who puts on police officer's clothing, unfortunately it's a reflection on the rest of them because there are good people out there doing good work every day. And you do sacrifice part of yourself to go out and help people every day, dealing with people at their worst. People sometimes invite us to their barbecues now. They didn't always, but if it wasn't for mean, crazy, and stupid, I wouldn't have a job. It's unfortunate that we actually need you to do your job yeah. because that's a reflection on society not being trained well enough to be human beings. I think people don't recognize it enough. That one bad person wearing a cop's uniform does not reflect the hundreds of thousands of police officers that are doing their job every day and not screwing it up. I think that's a fair statement to make. Yeah. And that was one thing that my daughter said. She says, yeah, they say one bad apple and they forgot the end of it, which is spoils the whole bunch. I get that statement, but I think one bad apple in police work makes all the others better. I think we respond to that in a positive way, usually.
I know in the Ashton Police Department, we see somebody do something stupid somewhere else in the country. And in law enforcement, we are our brother's and sister's keeper. If somebody's screwing up and doing something not right, it's our job and it's written down. It's our job to do something about it. Say something to them or say something to the supervisor so the supervisor does something about it. Handle the little shit so it doesn't become the big shit. Well, I appreciate you saying that and your time today. And I'm honored that we have this cool friendship. And I know a lot of people have horrible feelings towards law enforcement. I don't because that perception of spoils the whole bunch. That's not the police department's perception. That's people outside the police right. department's yes. perception. And it's unfortunate. But knowing that you and other people like you who have your temperament and your way of conducting yourself, I'm super grateful for. Thanks. Thanks, man. And thanks it. for coming on the show. I appreciate Absolutely. that. Strength, deity, power. Who is it? Who are you calling? Who are you calling? Who are you looking for? Wait. What? Mm. Mom. Mm. Mom. Wait. Let me swallow. What are you swallowing? Trying to swallow pills. What kind? That one was calcium. The next one is fish oil. The next one is cholesterol. Did you just get up? No. Oh. You're not having the mosquito problems we are out here, are you? Mosquito problems. I'm not aware of such things happening here or there. What's going on with the mosquitoes? I don't know, but they're not good mosquitoes, and... I don't know if they're causing some physical problem or disease or something. It is said that they are our only natural enemy. We are their prey. So they could take us out, theoretically. You're okay if you don't wear perfume or cologne. Okay. Just draw them, like 10 miles. Wow. Any interesting plans on the agenda? Well, I think Rachel's going to come over tomorrow and Haley. Yeah. Aaron's gonna thing do dirt bike racing. Yeah, motocross racing. We'll have Rosh Hashanah dinner together or something. When is Rosh Hashanah? Tomorrow night. Okay. Happy Rosh Hashanah, Mom. Thank you, my love. You too. Is that Shana Tova? Is that what you say? Uh-huh. Shana Tova. Mark, I have another call coming in. Can I take it? You're gonna dump your son for another call? Yeah. What? well that's the show i hope you enjoyed it i want to thank bond stewart for taking some time to explain such a very difficult profession that he's taken up but he's done it with a lot of class He's done it with honor, integrity, humility, and it shows that it is possible to do a really impossible job really well. Next week is going to be show number 80. That's how old my mother was when she passed. This show will be all about my mom. She was on this show more than anybody else. You can check out all shows on CastBox, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can also visit Citizen44.com. 
It is indeed my pleasure to bring this to you, and I will continue to do so. Thank you for listening. It is much appreciated. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. If whatever you're doing is not working, there's one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. Yes. I am Citizen 44.